ghosts, cryptids, murder, conspiracies, beer, what, the, ale. Hello, friends. Hello. Welcome back to What the Ale. I'm Alana Ray. And I'm Mama Jane. Um, and we are bringing you another full length episode. Happy Wednesday. Uh, what are you drinking, Mom? Um, I'm drinking a um coconut porter from Dustful Brewing. Nice. And it's delicious. It's very coconutty and yummy and chocolatey. Nice. Very cool. I um I'm having a Guinness. I uh yeah, I was just like feeling a classic, a classic today. So that's where I'm at. <laughs> Very nice. Any, any what the L moments? I was just about to ask you. Um, let's see. Any what the L moments? Um let's see. Um, I think one for me is that a family friend of ours had a little bubby, a little baby. And mm-hmm. we got to meet the baby, and that was really exciting because we had been waiting very patiently. So, yeah, um, yeah, I was just really happy to like get to have some baby time because I feel like no one I know other than them have a baby right now. So it's cool. <laughs> and no, and I'm excited because I get to be called Mossy, <laughs> and I'm very excited for that because I've never been a Mossy before. That's true. So. Yeah, because I'm gonna be like an auntie to the baby, so um, you know, not by not by blood, but by love. <laughs> so. Yeah, chosen family, very important. Yeah, yeah. So I'm very excited. She's a doll. She's so sweet, so so sweet. But yeah, yeah. I'm excited about that. What about you? Any any other what the L moments? Uh, my my only like I don't know this week's pretty mellow so far, but uh, my only what the L was. When I was doing the research for this um, this one, since I had to do a makeup for the Black Dahlia, um, <laughs> I realized that one of the suspects in this is named Sweeney. And while I was researching, I had a child that was at Sweeney Todd rehearsal. Um, so I thought that was kind of funny. That is funny. Yeah. <laughs> um. Well, I guess speaking of, since you brought up your research, do you want to go ahead and get into it? Yeah, so I decided, um, since we had both researched the Black Dahlia, um, and we were supposed to both record that same day, I decided to follow up on one of the other cases that was mentioned in the Black Dahlia case, um, which has two different names. One of them is in the Mad Butcher of Kingsbury Run, but better known as the Cleveland Torso Killer. Yes, this is going to be good. Okay. Yeah, so I figured since it came up in the Dahlia research, I figured I would cover it. And I didn't really know this case. Um, I might have heard of it before, but I really didn't remember anything. So um, it was all new for me. Um, so, um, yeah, so this is a case that um, there were um, killings between 1934 and 1938. So, you know, over a period of quite a while in Cleveland, Ohio. And um, the particular area in Cleveland was known as Kingsbury Run, and it was kind of like an impoverished neighborhood. They said that it was, um, I mean, that whole area, I guess, was hit 
pretty hard by the crash and um you know people were just struggling you know to make ends meet and so the living conditions were pretty bad and it was there was like a lot of crime um and then there there were some people that referred to it and this is not a PC term um but they referred to it as hobo jungle oh wow and okay then there was yeah there was an area that was um kind of like you know it had a lot of bars and brothels and gambling dens and that area was called the Ro roaring third Okay. And that area is kind of where the torso killer hunted or um, lured people from, it seems. Mm -hmm. So in total, 13 people were murdered. Six of them were women and seven were men. And then one of the sad things about these murders were that only, you know, of 13 people, only three of them were identified. Right. Um, I just remember yeah. that I know of the case, that a lot were unidentified. Yeah. Yeah, it's just so sad, you know, because most of them were unhoused. A lot of the women were sex workers. Um, and then, you know, all of them were decapitated, and some of them, the heads were never recovered either. So, um, and then, you know, in this, I'm just going to put the, the warning ahead of time for this whole case because, you know, there's 13 victims, and for every single one, there's some kind of gory detail. So, you know, if these kind of details are not your thing. Just know that I will be sharing the details because it's what makes this killer so unique and that's how we know it's the same person. Okay. Um, but yeah, I mean, he, he would really like dismember people. He would cut off body parts, cut people in half. Um, so none of the 13 victims, none of them were found with their body fully intact. Okay. Okay. So I'm going to go through most of the timeline except for the last, two and I'm going to add some details about the investigation um, because where the last two victims were found um, has something to do with one of the people investigating. Okay. So I'm going to add details about that person before I get to those two. Um, but the first person that was found was an unknown woman and she was in her 30s. Um, she was a found, um, like found along the shore of Lake Erie and this okay. was on September 5th, 1934. Mm -hmm. Um, now when I say a woman was found, I want to make it clear it was not a full woman because like I mentioned before, none of the bodies were like fully intact. Mm -hmm. So in this case, they found her thighs, her abdomen, one arm with no hand, and then the opposite hand with no arm. Um, and cool. then there was also what they called remnants, but I don't know what the remnants were. And then, again, this was a victim that had no head. And it was also said that she, her skin was treated with some kind of, um, like, chemical okay. that caused her skin to be, like, um, like red and irritated and kind of, like, leathery to the touch. Hmm. And she was referred to as the Lady of the Lake because she was the first victim she was found in the lake. Okay. Okay. And then, so that was September 5th. Then on September 23rd of 1935, so this was like a little over a year later, mm -hmm. there was a 28-year-old found, and he was at the base of what they call Jackass Hill. <laughs> I wonder um, why. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I think of like the Jackass movies. I'm like, it was an area that people like the Daredevil stuff, but I don't know. Um, 
No, this man was found naked, and he had rope burns on his wrist, and his body was also drained of blood, and he was emasculated. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, now, he, his, um, he, this is one of the victims that his identity is known. He was Edward and Jossie, and he was an orderly in the local hospital. Okay. And then later that same day, another male victim was found not too far from where Edward is found. And this man was approximately 40 years old, and he, you know, just like Edward, he was also decapitated and emasculated, mm -hmm. but he also had the same chemical um, preservative on his skin that was used in the first killing, and Edward did not have that treatment to his skin. Interesting. So, like, almost like maybe he was dead longer, or, like, well, or what do you... Yeah, I don't know. I mean, because they were both just found. It didn't say how long they thought he had been there. Um, but, yeah, it was just interesting that there was something to link this killing to both of those two previous. Right. Mm -hmm. um, you know, because he was killed the same way as the man was, but he had that preservative on his skin the way the lady did. So, yeah, it was just interesting that there was a clear way to identify that it was the same killer for all three. Yeah, interesting. Okay. And then... um. So, you know, again, those were, the first one was 1934, and then the next two were a year later. Mm -hmm. And then the next body wasn't found until January 26, 1936. So, you know, like six months later or something. Um, and this was somebody who was also, um, she was able to be identified. And her name is Florence Palillo. And her body was, like, found, like, kind of neatly wrapped in newspaper, but it was stuffed into two half-bushel baskets. And it was, like, right near a heart manufacturing building. So, um, you know, this is an interesting one because, like, he put the body clearly where it would be found right away, you know, in front of this company. And she was known to work in... Um, you know, as a sex worker, but she also worked in the bars, like as a waitress and like bar back. Okay. And um, so, you know, so part of her body was found in these baskets and then the rest of her remains, except for the head, were recovered about 10 days later in a vacant lot on Orange Avenue. Mm -hmm. And just like victims one and two, her death was due to decapitation. And, that, you know, I did say that, like all of their deaths, it seems like, they died by decapitation, and then anything else that happened to their body came after death. Um, okay. Yeah, but in this case, the killer waited for rigor mortis to start setting in before he, like, did anything to the rest of the body. Mm. And so, you know, that was different because he did, you know, kind of cut her into pieces, but he waited until some rigor mortis set in. So I don't know if he was, like, testing things out or seeing how things work or if he just got you know distracted somehow and had to come back to it I'm not sure but that was very different from the other cases mm -hmm. and then June 5th 1936 a man's head was found wrapped in pants um, in Kingsbury Run and the rest of his body was found the next day okay now I know I said the last one that, you know, he was getting a little brave about where he put bodies to where they'd be easily found. But this time he got really ballsy. Where do you think that he placed this body to be found? In front of the police station. Yes, ma'am. Right in front of Nickel Plate Railroad Police Building. 
Wow. So this body, again, was clean and drained of blood, and the corpse was intact except for the severed head. Huh. Was the head there? No. Okay. The head was missing. Or, no, yeah, this one, this one, I'm sorry, this one, the, the head was wrapped in the pants that were found before. Oh, okay. And then the body, yeah, the body was found the next day. So, yes, this one did have his head, but he still wasn't able to be identified. Oh, that's so sad. Okay. I know. And then um, July 22nd, so, like, I don't know, a month and a half later, a 40-year-old man was found in, like, kind of a foresty area off of Clinton Road. And this one was a little bit different than the others because there was, like, actually blood at the site where his body was. And so that probably means that that's where the murder took place and not just, like, a dumping site. Oh, wow. Um. And this one, the man, they said, had been dead for approximately two months. Hmm. Um, and so, you know, but they were saying that this one kind of looked more like it might have been in the heat of the moment kind of a vibe because he wasn't surgically dismembered the way the others were. Um, hmm. You know, but he, he was decapitated. Okay. Was there any conversation of that maybe being like a copycat or anything just since it was like heat of the moment and not so meticulous or like, is it pretty like wildly accepted that it's the torso murder? I think it's pretty accepted that it was him, you know, but they were saying, you know, before, you know, he just seemed like everything was pretty planned out or maybe he was like luring people to a spot or something. And so this was, you know, more like heat of the moment. So they were like, it was very different, but the decapitation was the same. Okay, cool. And then um, September 10th, 1936, there was another unidentified man. And, you know, again, the coroner says that, you know, he's like decapitated with one stroke. So, you know, I don't know. I mean, I I don't know about decapitation, but it seems like it's kind of hard to do that. I've heard and of so yeah, so for somebody to be, like, decapitating people with one stroke, and, again, it didn't say anything about what the weapon was. Like, was it a knife, I mean, a sword or an axe for it? You know, who knows? Um, but just to be able to do it with one clean stroke. Mm-hmm. And so this body was found because a man was trying to hop on a train, and he tripped over the upper half of the man's torso, Oh, and wow. then, they, yeah, so he told the police, and then they started searching by a nearby, um, kind of like a big open sewer, mm-hmm. and they found the lower half of the torso and parts of both legs in that area, mm-hmm. and then, you know, they the police sent a diver in to make the recovery, and they said that there was, um, you know, because, I mean, everybody had been following these murders in the press and everything, so when people found out they found another body, there were like 600 uh, spectators watching them recover the body. Oh, wow. And so they were saying that, you know, it's possible that the killer might have been among them because he was probably following the case, too. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this victim was in his late 20s, and again, the cause of death was the decapitation and everything else that happened in his body came later. Okay. Okay. And then February 23rd, 1937, partial remains of a woman were found on the shore east of um, Brentonville. And this woman was in her 20s. And um, now in this case, um, you know, because all the other ones, decapitation was the cause of death. And in this case, 
um, they said that the decapitation came after she was already dead. Okay. So, you know, this one was a little different. Um, and then the lower half of her torso washed ashore three months later. Oh, wow. Okay. So, you know, again, we didn't have full bodies. Um, but yeah, they did find part of her torso later. Um, and then this one is also a bit different. Um, on June 5th, 1937, there was a bag um, that was full of bones and a skull. Mm -hmm. And this was found under um, Lorraine Carnegie Bridge. And it was determined that this was a petite black woman who was in her 40s. And because they were um, able to do dental work, um, they were able to identify her as Rose Wallace. Oh, wow. Okay. So, again, she's one of the three now. So, she's the third and last one that we have a name for. Okay. And then July 6, 1937, a body of a man was found in the, um, oh, let's see. Let's see how it I say this. Cuyohoga River? Cuyohoga. Um, huh? I've heard it called, the like, the Cuyohoga River. Cuyohoga. I don't know. Whatever. That river. He appeared to be in his mid-to-late 30s, and his heart and his abdominal organs were missing. Oh, wow. Okay. And then there was another um, body found in that same river, and this time it was a woman. And this was the first time that one of the victims had drugs in her system. Now, I couldn't find anything that said what kind of drugs they were. Um, but one article I read said that they weren't sure if the drugs were re recreational or given to her by a killer. Oh. Um, yeah, but they were saying, like, that might have been a way to, like, um, you know, um, I don't know, have her, like, incapacitated so she couldn't fight back or something. Mm -hmm. And then um, she was found because uh, a person saw, like, floating in the river, and it ended up being her lower leg. And um, so that was the first piece that was recovered. And then a month later police found two burlap bags in the river that contained um, parts of her torso and the rest of both of her legs. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so again, just somebody who is never identified. Wow, okay. And now, yeah. So, um, I think this is where I'm going to take a break from the murders real quick to just say that, you know, obviously with all of these murders and you know, such, like, I don't know, just terrible and, you know, I mean, um, gruesome. There was obviously a lot of pressure on the police to solve this. And so the two lead detectives were Peter um, Morelio and Martin Zalewski. Uh, mm -hmm. And they interviewed, personally, the two of them interviewed 1,500 people in connection with these murders. Wow. And... Um, Peter even went undercover as, like, a vagrant and tried to, like, see if he could get any additional information or anything. Mm -hmm. And this was said to be the biggest police investigation in Cleveland's history. Oh, wow. And then Harold Burton, who is the mayor, ended up tapping in Elliot Ness to become more involved because he was the city safety director. Mm -hmm. And if Elliot Ness sounds familiar to people, um, think Al Capone. So... Yeah, because um, he, like, take down some of his, like, gambling dens and stuff. Wasn't that kind of what yeah. he Yeah, he was part of the takedown of, like, Untouchables and all that. So, 
Yeah, so he had, like, um, well, I guess I should say that, too. You know, he had, like, a stellar reputation because of all of those kind of crimes that he had been involved in taking down, like, some pretty major players. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, people, like, expected a lot from him. And, um, yeah, and so, you know, there was, like, a ton of pressure for him to, like, maintain his reputation and, you know, I think he felt, a lot, you know, he didn't want this case to be the one case that, like, destroys his reputation or whatever. Right. Um, yeah, so he, you know, he tried to do what he could. Um, and then um, this is where, you know, I want to say that um, this was August 16th, 1938. Mm-hmm. So because LNS was involved and obviously, you know, he thinks that he's going to be the one to solve it. Um, the other two bodies that were found were found by scrap collectors that were, like, foraging in a dump site, mm-hmm. and they found a woman's, um, torso, and it was wrapped in a man's, like, blue blazer, and mm-hmm. then wrapped again in an old quilt, and the legs and arms were discovered in a constructed, like, makeshift box, and that was wrapped in brown butcher paper and held together with rubber bands. Hmm. And then the head was there, but it was, like, also wrapped like that. Wow, okay. Um, And then they said that some of the body parts looked like they had been refrigerated. Hmm. Um, And then while they were searching for more pieces of her, the police discovered a second body that was only, you know, yards away from this one. And, um, again, you know, this killer is really trying to, like, fuck with the police because where do you think he put this body? Or these two bodies? Are they near Elliot Ness somewhere? They were outside of his window. So from his office, he can look out, and the two bodies were out there. Oh, my God. Wow. So he was, like, really trying to mess with Elliot Ness. I feel like killers really get so cocky after a while, you know, like they're like, yeah, I'm untouchable and I can do this. (laughs) Yeah. So then um, two days later, a group of cops and I think um, I think it said there were like 36 cops or something, um, but they were led by Elliot Ness to raid, um, you know, what was called Hobo Jungle. So, you know, really it was, you know, um, just a, p- a bunch of people that, you know, had, had lost everything and, like, the stock market crash, everybody was struggling. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they ended up clearing everybody out of these shacks that they were living in. And they ended up picking up 63 men. And um, and then this is where Elliot Ness, like, lost a lot of, um, I don't know, a lot of influence. Like, people really uh, disagreed with him about this. Um, And I do also, because he decided to order that they burn down the shacks that people were living in. Wow. Yeah. So after they did that, then they ended up charging all of the people who they just displaced by burning down their homes. Um, He charged them all with homelessness. And then they had to plead guilty because, you know, they couldn't prove that they had residents elsewhere. Um, So they were all kind of like, you know, fingerprinted and, like, technically booked, but, I mean, they weren't held or anything. But, you know, to me, that's such a dick move. And, like, you know, I know you're mad, and, you know, if you think that the killer is, like, among these people, and they did, like, um, search the shacks and everything before they burn it down. Mm-hmm. But, like, 
you know, you're displacing 63 people. And I don't know. So this act was referred to as cruel and draconian. Yeah. I mean, I agree. That's really Yeah. Yeah, and there was, um, yeah, they just, like, raided the whole encampment. There was, like, 11 squad cars, two police vans, three fire trucks, and, you know, they just, like, descended on this encampment. So, um, yeah, maybe just people had nowhere to go. It was really shitty. Mm -hmm. Um, So, so, yeah, he was, like, really torn up in the press and criticized. Now, um, there is an expert on the case named um, James Vettel. Mm-hmm. And he he's somebody who has, like, studied the case over the years, like, many, many years, like, you know, spent a lot of time. Yeah. And he said that he thinks Elliot Ness was trying to protect these people, mm-hmm. but, um, like, by getting them to move out of that area, since that's the area that a lot of these people were being, like, taken from. Right. Um, and then he also said that Elliot Ness wanted them to be fingerprinted. Um, so in case any of them did become victims, they could be identified. Um, but again, having them arrested so you could get their fingerprints so that you could be kind and identify them later. Um, to me, that just seems wrong on so many levels. Yeah. I mean, not getting super like anti-establishment or whatever, but I feel like that's totally what the government or whatever does, though. They're like, oh, look at what we're doing over here. But like, ignore this really bad thing we did sometimes like yeah. not, but sometimes I feel like that happens especially with like houseless folks and things like that um but yeah I agree that's really messed up to like arrest these people <laughs> yeah that. now the killing did stop after the raid um hmm. so you know I guess he can get some credit for that I don't know but um yeah so the killings did stop um now, I want to get into the two suspects that there are. Um, okay. Now, um, the first one, you know, I think you're going to agree with me. It's definitely not him, but we'll see what you think. Okay. His name was Frank um, Delenzel, and yeah. he was arrested for the murder of uh, Florence, the, you know, the woman that was, like, in the basket, uh-huh. um, and that was July 1939. So they arrested him. Because they found out that he and Florence had lived together at some point. And he also knew Edward and Rose, which were the other two named victims. Mm. Um, so, you know, because he was connected to three of the victims, like, they just decided he did it. And, you know, the thing that I'll say about that is, like, I feel like when you're living in an encampment, probably a lot of people all know each other. Yeah. And so... You know, to me, well, and I know, um, you know, one of them was somebody who, like, definitely wasn't living there, but um, the um, Edward, the one that was the, um, works in the hospital, you know, but I just feel like when you live in a neighborhood, like, you know, I mean, people know people, you know, so it doesn't shock me that he would know them. I think a lot of people would probably know all of them. Yeah. Um, I mean, even if you live in, like, an apartment, you know, kind of the people on your floor or you know, you see people getting your mail. Like, it just, yeah. that seems silly to be arrested just because of association. Yeah. Now, he did confess to Florence's murder. Oh. But okay. later, he said that, um, you know, he recanted, and he said that he confessed under duress because he was being beaten by the police. Oh. And, um, and so he recanted, and 
a month later, and this was right before his trial was supposed to begin, because they, you know, even though he recanted his uh, confession, they were moving forward with trial, and they, you know, he was still in jail. So right before the trial was set to begin, they found him hanging from a hook that was five foot seven in his jail cell, and this man was five foot eight. And the hook was five foot seven. So he was hanging there, but like clearly probably couldn't have hung himself. Mm. It wasn't, you know, he was too tall to hang himself from that hook. He was an inch taller than that hook was. And so to me, it doesn't seem like he actually hung himself. And then when they did the autopsy, it was found that he had six broken ribs. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. yeah, so again, his confession, so-called confession. Um, and the other thing I'll say about the confession, I totally didn't write this down, but it was said that, like, um, a lot of the confession was, like, kind of, like, gibberish. Like, you know, he was obviously probably being beaten and hurt and just, like, saying random things. And then every now and then there would be clear details from the murderer. And so it felt like the cops were filling in the details mm. or like feeding him the details so that he can, they could like prove, oh, see, he knew these details. Mm-hmm. So it definitely like the confession itself seemed really off because the stuff that seemed like it was actually stuff he was saying was clear under duress and, and anything that would prove that he was the murderer because he knew the details were like very clear and precise. So yeah, it just felt like it was told he was told what to say um yeah i mean and the autopsy did say that he didn't oh go ahead oh no i was just gonna say i feel like i've we keep hearing about all these cases where people are just like you know like there's like gaps in the tape or whatever i actually was listening to a podcast recently about the west memphis three which we'll totally cover and it's very sad um but like the guy one of the guys that like confessed to the crime like they interviewed him for 11 hours and there was only 34 minutes of recorded audio meaning that what were they talking oh about my gosh. 11 yeah. or 12 10 hours or whatever you know like so anyway I was just thinking about that because I just listened to that case and I'm like this sounds familiar <laughs> um but yeah yeah and then that um the the autopsy states that he didn't die the way that was reported, but I also couldn't find what the other explanation is, but just that he clearly didn't hang himself. Um, and then the the case expert that I mentioned before, James Bidal, um, he ended up later, you know, years later, like this, I think was in the 80s or something, but he ended up putting a grave marker um, for Frank, and it just said rest, you know, it said his name and then rest now. And that's because, you know, nobody believes he was the actual killer. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, he lost his life over this. So. Yeah. That's so sad, though. Yeah. And then the second suspect, who is the one that most people believe is the, is the actual killer. So our suspect number two is Francis E. Sweeney. And he's a doctor. So... He, he would have anatomical knowledge about how to dismember the bodies. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also said that he had a drinking problem and that he had a lot of involvement with, like, probate court, so maybe some money problems. Um, and then his wife said that he was abusive to her and her children, 
and uh, he would be gone for days at a time with no explanation. And during those periods of time, he would also neglect his medical practice. Um, so he did check himself into a mental, mental institution after the final murders, and the killings did stop. And during his stay there, he was diagnosed with schizophrenia. Hmm. Okay. Now, um, in May of 1938, Elliot Ness apparently took Sweeney to Old Cleveland Hotel. Mm -hmm. And, like, this was before Miranda rights and, like, stuff like that. But I'm pretty sure you still can't just, like, take a suspect to a hotel and, like, hold him there and question him and whatever. Um, but he did. So he, he said that it took three days to get Sweeney to sober up. And then a man named Leonard Keeler gave him a lie detector test. Mm -hmm. And fun fact, Keeler is the person who invented the polygraph. Okay. But he said that Sweeney failed the lie detector test twice. Hmm. Um, now, my question is, this man has been held against his will in a hotel for three days yeah. to sober up. And then he's being interrogated. And he fails a polygraph. Well, two polygraphs. Yeah. I'm not saying anything, but I, that doesn't shock me. <laughs> yeah, well, and I still do think that there are reasons why it could be him. Um, but yeah, it was not handled well. Okay. And then um, Sweeney was also related to a congressman, Martin L. Sweeney. Mm -hmm. And this might be part of the reason why Elianus kept quiet about the lie detector test, because he wasn't, like, coming out telling people he did this, you know? Mm -hmm. Um. You know, and I, again, it probably wasn't, like, legal to hold him at the hotel. So, like, Elliot Ness had to keep quiet about those things. Mm -hmm. um, but it was, like, a couple of months after the release of, um, you know, Sweeney was released from the hospital. That was when those bodies showed up outside of Elliot Ness's office. Um, so, you know, we do think that, like, because, you know, the killings, um, stopped while he was in the hospital and then you know right after he got out a couple months after those bodies showed up in front of or outside of Elliot Ness's window um, and then it was also said that in the 50s Elliot Ness got postcards that were claiming to be from Sweeney and um, because he was kind of like a secret suspect nobody really knew that Elliot Ness was you know thinking that he was for sure responsible Mm -hmm. So it's like a lot of people would not know his name. So maybe the cards did actually come from Sweeney. Um, but, you know, there's no way to prove that. Right. And then there was a man named um, Emil Fronick. And he told police that in 1934, a doctor tried to drug him. And he remembered the general location of the office. But when they drove him past, like it was like, um, you know, between two blocks and it was like on Broadway. Mm -hmm. And um, when they drove past, he couldn't quite recognize the building. But years later, it was proven that Sweeney did have an office on that same block that Emil said. Oh, wow. um, so even though Emil couldn't recognize the building when he was driven past, you know, because it, it didn't look like a medical building. It looked like just a nice office building. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that, that makes the connection there. And okay. then, um, and then there was, um, there, there was a guy that, he's like with the Scientific Identification Bureau. His name is David Cowles. 
And he was interviewed in 1983 by the Police Historical Society. Mm-hmm. And he said that his theory is that Sweeney had an agreement with an undertaker because there was a um, funeral home across the street from his office. And yeah. he thinks that maybe Sweeney had an agreement that they would let him practice on, like, surgery on bodies of the funeral home, like, unclaimed bodies. Oh. And, you know, but if, if he had access to that area, that would be an area where he could, you know, dismember and drain blood and do those kind of things without, like, leaving a mess that people would find in his own office or something. And, you know, they would have tools to, like, clean up and whatever. So, and maybe they really thought he was just practicing surgery and they didn't realize he was bringing live people there. Um, but that's a theory. Okay. And the, the his office and the funeral home that was across the way, um, they were very close to the Roaring Third, which is where people were probably lured from. And that's also the area where bodies were dumped. So they were saying, like, location-wise, it would make sense that that could have been where the killings actually happened because there was no evidence of any blood or killing in his office. So he was clearly doing it somewhere else. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. And then I will say Peter, um, the detective, he believes that the torso killer also committed murders in Newcastle, Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, obviously can't totally be proven. Mm-hmm. And then there is a crime reporter named Doris O'Donnell that says that she doesn't believe the funeral home story because she thinks that they would have noticed something suspicious was happening. Um, but I will say she also had personal reasons to not want Sweeney to be blamed because it was her uncle who was the sheriff at the time that arrested Frank and, you know, was claiming that Frank was for sure the killer. So, obviously, she wouldn't want there to be another possibility because that would make her uncle wrong and Frank died in jail for nothing, you know? Um, So, anyways, all of the evidence is super circumstantial. They didn't have anything that they could, like, actually pin on him or take to court. Like, they didn't have enough for a case. Mm -hmm. Um, But what do you think, Alana? Do you think it's Sweeney? I mean, I think he's convincing. He definitely, yeah, he definitely seems a bit sketchy. Um, and it wouldn't shock me based on the evidence that was found and like the house's friend who had that experience. So yeah, I, I could be, or I could see it being Sweeney, but I, again, I think this is just one of those cases where it's really hard when there's only circumstantial evidence and most of the folks involved are probably, you know, passed on by now. Um, But yeah, I don't know. Which is hard too, because there was no real witnesses other than the the guy that's, you know, in the all that said he was a doctor tried to drug him. Yeah. But even then, you know, we don't know that he was trying to drug him to murder him, you know, but they were saying like, if that was true that he had drugged people, that would make it easier for him to decapitate them with one swing because they wouldn't be moving. Oh, I was just going to say, because, like, if all of the, like, mutilation and stuff was post-mortem, my only thing would be, I guess, were they, because they had said that there was only, like, the couple of victims that had drugs in their system, so maybe he found other ways to get them to trust him and come with them, but, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Well, that's what people were saying was maybe he would, like, go get people and invite them back offering drugs or alcohol or something. Yeah. Well, and if some were sex workers, I mean, he could just be, like, you know, soliciting sex. Yeah. 
that yeah. you know isn't a thing um so yeah that is interesting have they i mean i know they do this with a lot of cold cases but have they tried to at least identify the victims using dna or anything or is it too far gone because i know they were doing you know i haven't seen anything about that you know um like the more recent stuff but yeah just only three of the victims were ever identified that's really sad i mean yeah. and i it's hard because like back then too i feel like just records were harder driver's licenses didn't have pictures on them you know that type of thing so there's all yeah. those things that make it harder but yeah that's really sad that there's so many that aren't identified yet um, yeah all right. Well, um, yeah, that is really sad that, you know, again, all those folks are unidentified and it's hard with old evidence and this was in the thirties and all of that. Um, do you have any, any other like theories or thoughts about the case or? No, I mean, it really just seems like there was no other suspects at all. And again, it's hard when there was no witnesses to anything. Um, yeah, so, I mean, but it had to be somebody who had anatomical knowledge because most people don't know how to do all of those things. And um, so, you know, a doctor totally makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, but, yeah, it just, I mean, it, it just seemed like all of the things that would connect Sweeney, you know, it was all such circumstantial evidence that it wouldn't be enough to convict, you know. Yeah. Well, something I think, too, is, you know, you have the... Um the anatomical knowledge, but also just like the sheer amount of strength. Like if you're decapitating someone with one swing or anything, like that's pretty, pretty strong. So yeah. Um, yeah. Wow. That's a, yeah, this is a toughie. I feel like, I feel like all these old cold cases are wild because sometimes you hear a, a suspect and you're like, oh yeah, obviously it's this person. And then you hear another one. Yeah. And you're like, just kidding. It's obviously this person, you know, like it's so hard. Um, hard well, point. and this is hard because there was only two suspects and it clearly wasn't Frank, so. Yeah, I absolutely don't think it was Frank. I think he definitely liked justice for Frank Dolezal, for sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, um, and the lie detector testing, you know, that's hard too because not only are they not always accurate, um, but obviously if he was being held in a hotel room and I don't know um, whether they were being kind to him during that or not. Um, but he had also just gotten out of a mental institution and gotten diagnosed with schizophrenia. So, like, he might not have been in his right mind to take a polygraph, even if he, you know, was innocent. You know, he might still look like he failed just because of all the different circumstances. But, yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, it just seems like circumstantial evidence-wise, he's probably the guy. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's hard. Well, and also because like polygraphs aren't admissible in court anyway. So yeah, what does that really prove other than, you know, someone's heart beats at a certain rate or whatever? Um, yeah. Well, and then I do wonder, you know, because if Elliot Ness like didn't want, like, you know, I mean, because he was worried about his career and his reputation and everything. Mm -hmm. So, but, you know, I could see him not wanting to um, disrupt a congressman. You know, because I think if he went to war with, you know, a congressman who he's accusing the family member, you know, I could see that becoming a big thing that would be a headache for his career. Yeah, totally. So I could see him not pushing it as much or, you know, kind of letting letting it go just because of that pressure. Yeah. Because he didn't seem like the type that let things go, really. You know, so. 
Mm-hmm. The fact that he did, I don't know. I just wonder about that pressure. Yeah, almost like, do you think there could have been a payoff? Like, I mean, I if he took down Capone, I feel like he probably wouldn't take a payoff, but that almost feels like he just, like, you know, distanced himself a bit. It, it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. It's all just strange. But, yeah, I, I would guess that it was him. Yeah. Um, but, again, there's just not a, a lot else to go on. There's no other suspects that are viable. Yeah. Yeah, that's so hard. I have no idea. <laughs> but, awesome. Well, thanks for thanks for sharing that. Uh, did you have anything else to add, or is that kind of the... No, that's pretty much it. But since we did Black Dahlia, I will say, um, clearly, I don't think they're related. I don't think they're related at all. I mean, I, I like her, her case, the mutilation was so different. And to me felt so personal. Whereas the, you know, dismemberment of the body is like, obviously, that is really horrible and tragic. But like, for Dahlia specifically, it felt more personal than these cases did. Um, Yeah. So, yeah, that's just me. But, yep. well, thanks for covering that one. It was definitely on my list of ones I was thinking about covering. So, yeah, well, I appreciate you listening. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate you telling it. And uh, we appreciate all of you lovely friends. Um, just remember to keep following us on the Instagram at what the L pod. You can DM us uh, any sort of uh spooky stories if you survive some wild crime case or have a ghost in your attic or anything in between we would love to hear it um you could also email those stories to us at whatthealpod at gmail.com um we are still releasing bonus episodes on patreon so if you want to subscribe you are welcome to and we also have little gifties for you when you subscribe um But outside of that, I think that's everything we have housekeeping wise. So thank you so much for your story, Mama. We appreciate it so much. Yeah, you're welcome. And look out for our keg next week. Yes, our keg is coming out next week. And we appreciate you all, lovely friends. All right. Bye-bye. Good night, guys.